This is a Hot Pie Original. Happier. We all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different, yet all the same. That was said by Anne Frank. And another quote. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Harold Whitman. Now, most of psychology has studied problems. We've studied what's wrong with people. But this comes at it from a whole different perspective. And that is what's right with people. And it combines self-help with the academic journals and academic information. Positive psychologists combine science and self-help, and they end up with accessible ideas and practical theories, as well as simple techniques and tips that work. So this is the best of both. You know, when I had my private practice uh, and I was working with a hundred or so people a week, people would come in and I would ask them, what did they want from being in therapy? What did they want from being in counseling? And almost to a person, they said, I want to be happier. I want to be happy. That is a great goal that most of us have. The fascinating part is that more and more we are focused on happiness and a lot of times we are not achieving it. Let me give you some statistics. The rates of depression are 10 times higher now than they were in the 60s. The average age of depression onset is 14 and a half compared with 29 and a half in 1960. In American colleges, nearly 45% of all the students were so depressed they had difficulty functioning. While levels of material prosperity increase worldwide, our happiness doesn't. If we're so rich, why aren't we happy? Many of us have asked ourselves, what would make me happier? And in studies and research across the country, when thousands of people were asked, what would make you happier? The answer overwhelmingly was more money. When people were asked what will make you unhappier was a debilitating illness or injury, permanent injury like Christopher Reeve had, where he was paralyzed from the neck down. So researchers thought, okay, well, this is interesting. So if money's going to make us happier, let's study people who got money and see what happened to them. So what they did is they went out there and did research studies of lottery winners. And yes, for about a year, it made them happier. Then they went back to where they were before they got the money in terms of happiness or even lower. Let me give you some results of that study. They were sort of interesting. The research shows that roughly one-third of lottery winners find themselves in serious financial trouble or bankrupt within five years of turning in their lucky numbers. I want to tell you the story of Evelyn Adams. For a lot of people, winning the lottery is an American dream, but for many lottery winners, it is more like a nightmare. Winning the lottery isn't always what it's cracked up to be, says Evelyn, who won the New Jersey lottery not just once, but twice, in 1985 and in 1986, to the tune of $5.4 million. Today, the money is all gone, and Adams lives in a trailer. I won the American dream, but I lost it. It was a very hard fall. It's called rock bottom. Everybody wanted my money. Everybody had their hand out. I never learned one simple word in the English language, and that was no. I wish I could do it again. I'd be much smarter now. But she can't go back, and now she has lost all that money and lives 
uh, as we said, in a trailer and on welfare. William Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988, but now lives on his Social Security check. He said, I wish it never happened. It was a total nightmare. A former girlfriend successfully sued him for a share of his winnings, and it wasn't his only lawsuit. Uh, His brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to kill him, hoping to inherit his share of the winnings. Other siblings wanted money. He gave it to them, and all of their ventures failed. Post even spent time in jail for firing a gun over the head of a bill collector. Within a year, he was a million dollars in debt. Post admitted he was both careless and foolish. He eventually declared bankruptcy, and he now lives quietly on $450 a month and food stamps. So the idea or the fantasy that more money will make you happier is doesn't play out. Let's look at the other side of the issue, and that is the debilitating illness or an injury like being a quadriplegic will make you less happier. No question that within the first year and a half after an injury such as this, people's happiness plummets. Then, after they work through the grief, many people come back to the same level of happiness they had uh, before the injury. People like Christopher Reeve even say that it gave them something that they never had before, and that was more meaning and purpose. Sometimes we promise ourselves that when I reach that goal, a different weight, more financial success, a new relationship, then I'll be happy. Happiness is a process, not a destination. If I ask, am I happy? The answer I give is a concrete answer, like yes or no. The real question should be, what can I do to be happier? Happiness is an ongoing process, not a finite point. If you say, no, I'm not happy right now, then the further questioning has to be, what can I do to make myself happier? First of all, let's get our terms right. How would you define happiness? What does happiness mean to you? The happiness definition that I like is it says happiness is the overall experience of pleasure and meaning. A happy person enjoys positive emotions while perceiving his or her life as purposeful. The definition does not pertain to a single moment, but to a generalized experience of your life. A person can endure emotional pain at times and still be happy. So attaining lasting happiness requires that we enjoy the journey on our way toward a destination that we deem valuable. Happiness is not about making it to the peak of the mountain, nor is it about climbing aimlessly around the mountain. Happiness is the experience of climbing towards that peak. Now, I want you to take an exercise right now to find out how happy you are. In general, how happy or unhappy do you usually feel? There are 10 questions. You just mark one of them, one of the answers that applies to you. Number 10 is I feel extremely happy feeling ecstatic, joyous, fantastic. Number nine, I feel very happy, feeling really good, elated. Eight, pretty happy, spirits are high, feeling good. Seven, mildly happy, feeling fairly good and somewhat cheerful. Six, slightly happy, just a bit above normal. Five, neutral, not particularly happy or unhappy. Four, slightly unhappy, just a bit below neutral. Three, mildly unhappy, just a bit low. 
Two, pretty unhappy, somewhat blue, spirits down. One, very unhappy, depressed, spirits very low. And zero, extremely unhappy, utterly depressed, completely down. So rate yourself on one of those numbers from 10 to zero. Now let's consider your emotions a moment further. On average, what percentage of the time do you feel happy? I'm going to ask you three questions here about happiness, and I want you to make the figures add up to 100%. So what percentage of the time do you right now feel happy? Put down the percentage. What percentage of the time do you feel unhappy? What percentage of the time do you feel neutral? Write down your best estimates and make sure that the figures add up to 100% or just think about them in your head, okay? Let me give you these results. Based on a sample of 30,000 American adults, the average score out of 10 is 6.92, which means well, the average score is slightly happy, which is 6, to mildly happy, which is 7. It's closer to 7, which is mildly happy, feeling fairly good and somewhat cheerful. That's the average. The average score on time that you are happy is 54.13%. The average score on time that you're unhappy is 20.44% and neutral 24.43%. So those are the average scores. See how you rate in terms of those averages. David Hume, a British philosopher, said, the great end of all human industry is the attainment of happiness. Studies show that happy individuals are successful across multiple life domains, including marriage, friendship, income, work performance, and health. Happiness is a process. It combines pleasure and meaning. And pleasure has present benefit and meaning has future benefit. So we have to have fun. We have to have some pleasure in what we're doing. And it has to have a future benefit or a value or a purpose. So pleasure and meaning. That is the process of creating more happiness. If you have too much pleasure, ultimately uh, you may have lower meaning and so you may not be happy. If you have too much meaning and it's all about the future, it's all about what you're trying to create and no pleasure in the present, that also can throw off your happiness. Okay, so pleasure. While the happy person experiences highs and lows, their overall state of being is positive. Most of the time, he or she is propelled by positive emotions such as joy and affection rather than negative ones such as anger and guilt. Pleasure is the rule, pain the exception. To be happy, we have to feel that on the whole, whatever sorrows, trials, and tribulations we may encounter, we still experience the joy of being alive. Here's a little exercise. Make a list of things, little to big things, that provide you with pleasure. It can be all the way from your cup of coffee in the morning to having that wonderful trip to Paris you've always wanted to have. So make a list of little to big things that provide you with pleasure. Now, in the meaning category, you have to have both a general and specific sense of purpose or meaning. We need to find meaning on a general and specific level in our daily existence. It's difficult to sustain a general sense of purpose that lies far off on the horizon. We need a more specific and tangible sense of doing something meaningful today or tomorrow. So you can have a general sense of creating a happy family and a specific purpose of taking your son to lunch today. 
So we need to have both general and specific. Just as pleasure is not sufficient for the attainment of happiness, neither is a sense of purpose. First, it's exceedingly difficult to sustain long-term action, regardless of the meaning we assign to it, without enjoying the emotional gratification in the present. We need to balance the challenge of pleasure and meaning, present and future benefit. When we derive a sense of purpose from what we do, our experience of pleasure is intensified, and taking pleasure in an activity can make our experience of it all the more meaningful. So this brings us to the point, how can I be happier? Well, there are many thoughts on this. I want to share with you some of them. One of the thoughts is to create rituals. Now, we all know that change is hard. Much research suggests that learning new tricks, adopting new behaviors, or breaking old habits may be harder than we even realize, and that most attempts at change, whether by individuals or organizations, fail. It turns out self-discipline is usually insufficient when it comes to fulfilling our commitments, even those we know that are good for us, which is why most New Year's resolutions never work. In their book, The Power of Full Engagement, Jim Lohr and Tony Schwartz provide a different way of thinking about change. We need to introduce rituals. According to Lore and Schwartz, building rituals requires defining very precise behaviors and performing them at very specific times, motivated by deeply held values. Initiating a ritual is often difficult, but maintaining it is relatively easy. Top athletes have rituals. They know what specific hours during each day they are on the field, after which they are in the gym, and then they stretch. For most of us, brushing our teeth at least twice a day is a ritual and therefore does not require special powers of discipline. We need to take the same approach towards change we want to introduce. What rituals make you happier? What would you like to introduce into your life? It could be working out three times a week, meditating for 15 minutes every morning, watching two movies a month, going on a date with your spouse on Tuesdays, pleasure reading for an hour every other day, and so on, or working and calling three people a day, or making four different sales a month, whatever it happens to be. Introduce no more than one or two rituals at a time and make sure they become habits before you introduce new ones. As Tony Schwartz says, incremental change is better than an ambitious failure. Success feeds on itself. Now, over and over again, we hear in all the books and CDs that are around, reflect on what you're grateful for. But you know what? You can't really say that too much. Try listing what you're thankful for every morning or every evening. Before I get out of bed in the morning, I think about the top five or six things I'm grateful for. By focusing on that, it starts the tone of my day. And it focuses on the positive and reminds me that my life is more than a series of stressful events and makes the maddening moments more bearable. Research shows that people who have a gratitude journal and five things they're grateful for, write them down every night, are happier than people that don't. Why? Because they're focused on what's giving them pleasure and meaning, and that is what they're grateful for. Their family, their business, their health, whatever it happens to be. Another option to create more happiness is consider that happiness is the ultimate currency, that it's much more important than money. 
Too often we put money or striving or career ahead of happiness. We maybe don't say we do that, but in our lives and in how we allocate our time, it certainly goes that way. Happiness is more important than money. It's not a substitute for money. You need both. But happiness is the most, the ultimate currency. Another thought is to build even more meaningful relationships. Try to focus on and deepen the relationships you have, and that will create more pleasure and more meaning in your life. Help yourself by helping others. Find someone to give to, find someone to share with. And that's a a subset of building more meaningful relationships. But truly helping someone gets you out of your whatever position you're in in your life and helps you focus where you can make an impact. And that is on how other people feel. By doing that, that also turns around and feeds your happiness meter and gives you more. So those are some ideas on how you can become happier, along with thinking about how you create pleasure and meaning on a daily basis. We want to focus on happiness in terms of your goals as well as happiness in general and happiness in your, in, in your life. I want to share with you a, a story from Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He describes uh, an elderly group of Zen monks mountain climbing in the Himalayas. Though Prisig was the youngest member of the expedition, he was the only one who struggled. He eventually gave up while the monks effortlessly ascended to the peak. Prisig focused on the goal of reaching the peak of the mountain and was overwhelmed by what still lay ahead. He was unable to enjoy the climb, and because of that, he lost his desire and his strength to carry on. The monks also focused on the peak, but only to make sure that they were staying on course, not because reaching the peak itself was the most important to them. Knowing that they were headed in the right direction allowed them to focus their attention and enjoy each step, rather than being overwhelmed by what still lay ahead. The proper role of goals is to liberate us, not to make us feel imprisoned. Many times we use our goals as a way of overwhelming us and getting us distracted and unhappy about the process. So we need to refocus our goals. The emphasis in this approach is not so much on attaining the goals as it is on having them. David Watson, who wrote an article on positive affectivity, underscores the value of the journey. Contemporary researchers emphasize that it is the process of striving after goals rather than the goal attainment per se that is crucial for happiness and positive feelings. The primary purpose of having a goal, a future purpose, is to enhance enjoyment of the present. Goals are means, not just ends. For sustained happiness, we need to change the expectations we have of our goals. Rather than perceiving them as ends, expecting that their attainment will make us happy, we need to see them as means, recognizing that they can enhance the pleasure we take in the journey. Now, I know that this is a whole reframe, a whole new attitude that most of us have about goals. We see goals as an event that we strive for, we get, and they're an end in themselves. What this research is saying is that we need to pivot and we need to see goals as a means, not just an end. And that we need to have pleasure in the journey toward that destination. Integrating our goals 
as a means and not an end only is something that we can do in our business. And if we can do it, that we have both pleasure and meaning in both the present and the future. And that is the the real key. You know, when I was reading this book and they were talking about how you set goals. And it says that the pursuit of goals that are both pleasurable and meaningful, that yield both present and future benefit, are a way we enliven our time rather than killing our time. One of the things that I heard in an interview with Joseph Campbell, who wrote um, many of the um, great books on mythology, he talks about following your bliss. And he, when he was asked by Bill Moyers whether he had ever had a sense of being helped by hidden hands, he answered like this, all the time. It's miraculous. I even have a superstition that has grown on me as a result of invisible hands coming all the time. Namely, that if you do follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while, waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one that you are living. When you can see that, you begin to meet people who are in your field of bliss. They open doors to you. I say, follow your bliss and don't be afraid. The doors will open where you didn't even know they were going to be. All of us want to be happier. The truth is, happiness is learned. It's not just given. It's practice. It doesn't just descend on us. And it is the integration of having pleasure and meaning. My guest today is Dr. Jim Logan, a dear friend for almost 40 years, a medical doctor with advanced training in areas as diverse as molecular genetics, evolutionary biology, adaptive psychology, and peak human performance. A student of human potential, as well as an empathic observer of the human condition, he is, like the rest of us, a fellow seeker. No stranger to the best and the brightest, he has been personal physician to the astronauts and their families, chief of medical operations at NASA's Johnson Space Center, a consultant for the RAND Corporation, co-founder of the American Telemedicine Association, and past provost of the International Space University. Besides the many patients he has cared for throughout his professional career, he has interacted and worked with some of the most accomplished people around today, research scientists, engineers, test pilots, and professional space travelers from many countries. You would think a group as accomplished and successful as this would have a lock on happiness, but Jim says no. They are plagued by the same doubts, insecurities, weaknesses, fears, inadequacies, and psychological quirks as the rest of us. I'm sure I'm not the only one to find that refreshing and a tad depressing at the same time. So here we're going to talk to Dr. Jim Logan. Hello, Jim. How are you doing? I'm fine, Beth. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. So good to have you back on the program. We have talked before about stress. And wow, what accomplishments you have, my friend. I tell you, I knew all this, but reading it, I was just more impressed. And I know you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're impressed. I am. I am. Okay, now. Now, here you are, a scientist, you work at NASA, you're involved in space. How did you become drawn to the study of happiness? Well, the answer is kind of multifaceted. On one level, it's really kind of straightforward. I mean, like like everyone else, I've experienced what felt like true happiness occasionally in my life. And as simple as it may sound, I liked it and wanted more of it. Sure. 
I know people who kind of have a knack for it and even attract it. And Pat, I've always thought you were one of those people. Thank you. And I also know more than a few unfortunate souls whose lives have been kind of strangely devoid of much demonstrable happiness. It's almost as if they have a chronically low happiness quotient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over the course of my life and especially interactions with patients during my medical career, I, I really began to wonder why people seem to have such different capacities for something as important as happiness. I mean, was it plain luck? Is it good or bad genes? To what degree is it influenced by environment, upbringing, or state of health or disease? Anyway, the more I thought about it, the more I read, the more I observed, the more curious I got. So what is associated with happiness? Wealth, education, religion? Can we attract it, create it, manipulate it, or even enhance it? And if we can, how? This whole concept really became increasingly uh, dawning for me. The more I got into it, kind of the fuzzier it, it became. <laughs> it is it is sort of a, an evasive, elusive concept, isn't it? I mean, it, it it's something we is. all want, but the the sometimes the feeling is it's only a momentary experience. So, yeah, I want to hear some more about that. What what have you been thinking about it? Well, what really fired me up was the realization we don't teach anything about happiness in our schools. Uh, Our kids spend years learning about reading, writing, arithmetic, the arts and sciences, sports, history, and whatever. So shouldn't we be teaching them something about happiness? Yeah, I think that is so powerful. You know, I haven't used algebra ever. (laughs) I could certainly have used happiness, you know? I mean, I think that's so to the point. So, oh. What do we, you know, what do we know about happiness? Is there a science of happiness? Well, and it gets back to the point that if we could teach our kids something about happiness, what would we teach them? In other words, you know, is there some kind of formula, some magic mix of love, work, play, and psychological skills for a good life? Yeah. Yeah, tell us. Since I'm a scientist by training, I finally had to go by the, back to the basics and ask myself, well, what do we really know about happiness? And for that, I had to go back to square one, the scientific literature. And it turns out there's some real surprises there. Oh, cool. Tell us. What? Well, when we talk about happiness, first of all, we've all heard anecdotal reports about happiness. The different people give us their individual insights. There's Sometimes there's kind of a common sense about happiness or even a conventional wisdom about it, you know, something you might hear on uh, on Oprah. Uh, <laughs> it, it even goes into our, our national lexicon. Even the comedians talk about it. Mm-hmm. I heard one comedian the other night say, Lord, just give me one chance to prove money can't buy me happiness. <laughs> And sometimes there are the realists who say, uh, well, you know, anybody who thinks that money can't buy happiness has never held a warm puppy. And I've heard other people say, well, money can't buy happiness, but it can sure make a down payment. Yes. Yes, I've heard that one, too. So a lot of science uses the questionnaire that is self-reporting, but there's a real limitation in that. And the limitation is in the self part and the fact that it's only a slice in time. I mean, if you've just won the $100 million lottery and I ask you if you're happy, chances are you're going to say yes. Right. But we now know that if I ask you the same question five years after you win the $100 million lottery, chances are you're going to say no. Yeah. That's fascinating research, by the way, that so, people drop down in their in their happiness after they get the lottery. Yes, that's yeah. uh, kind of telling, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
So scientific method is an approach. It's, it's kind of a method of investigation that results in, in measuring some kind of fact or truth. And, and done correctly, it's a, it's a proven pathway to discovery. Um, it, it generates data with a sample size large enough to give it what we call statistical power. And that's the power of validity. In other words, we're measuring something real, uh, something that gives us uh, reproducibility, that is, independent investigators using the same approach or experimental design to arrive at the same conclusion. But most of all, it gives us predictive value. In other words, we can use our findings to generate hypotheses that are testable in, in subsequent studies. So I know you've read a lot of the science of happiness, and it's an interesting concept even to put science and happiness together, don't you think? That's true. Uh, because, uh, I mean, there's such a, an ephemeral quality to happiness. I mean, it's something that you seem to experience in moments. You dip in and out of it. And science, as you as you said so clearly, is predictable and uh, reproducible. Um, but applying science to happiness, I know we're going to talk about a study that you, uh, that you think is wonderful in, in just a minute. But since you brought it up, before we get there, um, does money buy happiness? Well, according to science, the short answer is no. And the long answer is still no, but with a caveat. Um, it's been shown that those people at the extreme low end, in other words, people who earn less than $10,000 a year, may be kind of rendered unhappy by their relentless grind of, of poverty. But multiple studies have shown that after a poor person's income exceeds that level, there's no further correlation between money and happiness. In other words, after a certain level of income, typically enough to meet basic expenses, money just ceases to be a factor. So the bottom line is money and happiness really do not go hand in hand, at least not in the way you might expect. You know, I think many would agree that our culture continues to behave as it does. And do you find that as ironic as I do? Well, I do, and it really it even gets stranger. One of my favorite books is a is a book that was written in 2004 by the investigative journalist Greg Easterbrook, who's a senior editor of The New Republic. And he wrote a book titled The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And in it, he draws on really 30 years of research to make the assertion that almost every aspect of Western life has vastly improved over the past century. Yet the data show that most men and women today feel less happy than in previous generations. Hmm. I mean, a gener- you know, a generation ago, owning a home and a car and taking one vacation a year using the car was the epitome of material success. Right. But now... Those goalposts have definitely moved. He kind of referred to our national uh, abundance problem as affluenza. (laughs) And he describes it kind of as the blurred line between wants and needs. Nowadays, the, the market creates so many new things a year that you couldn't keep up with it even if money were no object. Right. And you, you have to keep uh, in mind the difference between a want and, and a need. A person needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter, medical care, education, transportation, things like that. But once you attain that, those needs are fulfilled. Right. Wants can never be satisfied. The, the more you want, the more likely you are to feel disgruntled. And the more you acquire, the more likely you are to feel controlled by your own possessions. Uh, David Myers has a great phrase for this 
what he calls the quandary of affluence. And the phrase that he has is, the victor belongs to the spoil. Uh, <laughs> but here's the other thing. Um, in this culture right now, I think that there, uh, by necessity and by choice uh, as well, there's a move for all of us to simplify. There's a move for us, I think, to move away from the material definition of happiness to the more spiritual or psychological or emotional definition. What do you, what do you see about that in some of your research? Well, I think that's absolutely true, and especially with this most recent uh, economic downturn. So one of the, one of the positive parts of this is there might be an upside of down, really, quite frankly. Exactly. And mm-hmm. that's the culture really coming around and, and getting back to basics. Right. And and being happy in the moment and not always waiting for it to occur. That's right. Yeah. So does your research in other countries show the same disconnection between happiness and money? Well, th- there is such a thing as the World Database of Happiness. Really? How interesting. And uh, this database has really uh, an ongoing uh, register of scientific research on the subjective enjoyment of life. It's a questionnaire. Scores are based on your responses to questions. Um, and then you rate these questions uh, zero to, to ten. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But when you compare each country's gross domestic product per capita, with their happiness score, there really isn't much of a of a of a correlation between how happy people are and how much they make. Uh, for example, uh, Guatemalans have the same happiness score as Canadians, but their GDP per capita is only one eighth as as much. Huh. We here in the U.S. think we're real happy, but we rank 17th in happiness. Behind, and I'll, I'll list these countries real fast, but the list is interesting. Behind Denmark, Colombia, Switzerland, Austria, Iceland, Australia, Finland, Sweden, Canada, Guatemala, Ireland, Luxembourg, Mexico. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Mexico, Norway, Netherlands, and Malta in that order. The UK is 22nd. Italy is 27th. Israel is 35th. China, India, and Japan are 44th, 45th, and 46th, respectfully. And even more interesting are the bottom 10. And the bottom 10 are Russia, Pakistan, Bulgaria, Georgia, Belarus, Armenia, Ukraine, uh, Moldova, Zimbabwe, and last as well as least, Tanzania. Hmm. So really, the, the, the bottom line is more is not necessarily better when it comes to creating a life well lived. It more may definitely be more, but it's it's never enough. And so here in the West, we seem to be caught up in the belief that if we achieve, we go up the ladder, if we accumulate more stuff, we, we will feel somehow more full inside. But the data don't support that myth at all. It just it just quite frankly ain't so. Yeah. Okay. I would expect that the national culture has something to do with those rankings. Well, yes, and you'd be absolutely right. Uh, you know, everybody's gone to the bookstore, and you see these shelves that are stuffed with titles that, you know, things like uh, learn the secrets to daily joy and lasting fulfillment. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the question is, what does it mean really to be happier? I mean, for the past 30 years, Denmark has topped almost every single international happiness survey. But are Danes really that happy? Uh, if you ask an American how it's going, you'll, use, you'll usually hear something like, great, you know, or fantastic, or couldn't be better. If you ask a Dane, you'll hear the Danish version of, well, it could be worse. 
And uh, a team of Danish scholars really puts it this way, and this is a quote from them. Quote, Danes have consistently low and realistic expectations for the year to come. Year after year, they're pleasantly surprised to find that not everything is getting more and more rotten in the state of Denmark. <laughs> so it kind of has to do with your national personality as well. So what sense do we make of all this, Jim? That well, if you're a successful person, you had better be focusing on your relationships to be happy, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and the, the fascinating thing about the study was they designed it to generate a bunch of yeses and nos, do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. But what they found is that they they, they couldn't do that. Uh, it, lives lives were much more complex than than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. here's some of the things that correlated with it. it. One of the questions they asked was, "What allows people to work and love as they grow old?" So as they followed these people, they came up with seven major factors that predicted healthy aging. Okay, both physically and psychologically. Mm -hmm. And employing mature adaptations was one. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. That's that's really a biggie. But the others were education, stable marriage, not smoking, not abusing alcohol, some exercise, and healthy weight. Now, these were the statistics. I think this is really telling. Of the 106 Harvard men who had five or six of these factors in their favor by age 50, half ended up at 80, what Dr. Valent called the happy well. And only 7.5% ended up in what he called the sad, sick category. Meanwhile, of the men who had three or fewer of those health factors by age 50, none ended up in the happy well at 80. Wow. Even if they'd been in adequate physical shape at 50, the guys who had three or fewer of those protective factors were three times as likely to be dead at 80 as those with four or more factors. Wow. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wow. Okay, now another question is, well, we've talked about things that do matter. Are there factors that don't matter? And here is where there were some real surprises. Are, are you ready for this? Sure. Cholesterol levels at age 50 have nothing to do with health in old age. Hmm. Interesting. Now, it, it, while, you know, while your social ease correlates highly with success in college and early adulthood, its significance diminishes over, over time. So what that tells you is that the kind of the predictive importance of whatever your childhood temperament is diminishes over the course of your life. In other words, you know, shy, anxious kids might tend to do poorly in young adulthood, but by age 70, they're just as likely to be outgoing or as successful uh, as the outgoing kids were. Interesting. So uh, Valent says, if you follow lives long enough, the risk factors for healthy life adjustment change. There's an age to watch your cholesterol and an age to ignore it. Hmm. I find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. We're all focused on all those uh, different uh, biological issues, too. Here's here's another one. Regular exercise in college predicted late life mental health better than did physical health. Really? And depression turned out to be a major drain on physical health. Well, I don't think that's any big surprise. But um, exercise in college predicted... um, Mental health. Mental health late in life. Yep. Does exercise include, um, you know, partying? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
unfortunately so for us, Pat, right? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just trying to assess my mental health. I think it's going down by the minute. Yeah, no, I think your mental health is fine. <laughs> I don't think you need to worry. Okay. Now, here's something really, really interesting. I, I just found this fascinating. I mean, I mean, I'm probably kind of nerdy, but, but I just thought this was amazing. They even found that personality traits that were assigned by the psychiatrists in the initial interviews – and I'm talking about the interviews that were happening when they first got into the study at age 19. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. The, the personality traits described by those psychiatrists in the initial interviews largely predicted who would become Democrats and who would become Republicans. Oh, we don't want to go there. <laughs> but it's true. It's well, true. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. So. And so they found that if the psychiatrist used descriptions that included the words sensitive, cultural and introspective, those people tended to become Democrats. If they use the words pragmatic or uh, and organized, those people tended to become Republicans. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay, got a question for you. Yeah. I'm going to wrap it up here. Okay. Um, where is the whole issue of biochemistry in happiness? I know that there's a lot of new uh, information out there in terms of brain um, hormones and, and the whole uh, neurotransmitters. W- what do you know as a doctor about some of the issues of genetic determinism or, or uh, biochemistry? Well, th- that is a fascinating question. It's, it's an excellent question. And since I have advanced training in biochemical genetics, that was one of the things that I really looked at because when you look at the at the kind of the grand paradigm of, of biology at least up, up till recently that idea was that genetics was destiny mm-hmm. you know we know that mental illness to a large degree is associated with biochemical changes mm-hmm. and you can argue all you want about cause and effect but when you change the biochemistry you change the affect of the uh, disease mm-hmm. that's how medicines work mm-hmm. and and I found that strangely kind of depressing, really, to think that it was just kind of the luck of the draw of genetics. Well, now we are finding out that even the basic biology is much more flexible than that. So there is now a field of genetics known as epigenetics, and epigenetics has to do with the interaction of the genome with the um, environment. And that's, in other words, the environment can change which genes are expressed and which genes are not. And even even more interesting is the fact that environment also includes the psychological, mental environment. In other words, not only will your uh, biochemistry, if you will, change depending on what physical environment you are in, it will also change as a result of what psychological environment you are in. So basically, some of the new research is that if you take it upon yourself to decide that you can change your thought process, then maybe you've noticed that you are too negative or maybe you notice that you tend to go to, uh, you know, the, uh, the dark side, let's say, and you know that that's not helping you and you actively intervene. You can literally affect your genetics as well. I think the answer to that question is an unqualified yes. So you, you have to make sure that it's that it's not interpreted um, um, simplistically. Mm-hmm. In other words, here's here's a very important point. All of us deal with reality by distorting it. Mm-hmm. You cannot help but distort reality. 
Right. You, you distort it even on a, on a subconscious basis. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason that some people see reality and they interpret it as the glass being half full or the glass being half empty. Okay, And we all use the same kind of defense mechanisms, whether they are immature defense mechanisms or even psychotic defense mechanisms or uh, mature defense mechanisms. So if, if you're going to distort reality, in other words, if you have no choice but to distort reality, let your distortions work for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to that in that sense, and to that degree, you have some control over your internal, psychological, mental, emotional environment, and that literally changes the way the biochemistry works. Right, right. So, if you want to feel better, take charge of what you think and what you feel right now. Now, that is simply said, but the implications of that are huge. Yes. Yes, but it is it is a point upon which you can pivot. Right. And it's not just woo-woo psychology. This is what biology has found. I love that. I love that. Of course, I've been saying this for years. So. Well, you were always ahead of your time. <laughs> well, you know, I read a fascinating book that I want everyone to know about, too. It's called uh, My Stroke of Insight. It's by Jill Bolt. Taylor, who was a Harvard, we're talking about Harvard, was a Harvard neuroanatomist um, studying the brain. And she watched herself have a stroke at age 37. And she watched basically her left side of her brain shut down. And of course, she knew what was happening. I mean, she, you know, she understood, oh, there's my motor reflexes, there's that, there's this. Um, And in her eight-year recovery, she rebuilt that part of her brain, but she decided the point that I found fascinating from my psychological perspective, she decided that some of the ways that she handled life, she didn't need anymore, that she didn't need to be, have all these negative thoughts about different things or all this judgment about herself. And so when she rebuilt some of these neurosynapses uh, and, and really worked on herself, she worked on the whole idea of self-acceptance, of being more positive, and she rebuilt her brain in that paradigm. And, and that's one of the standard reasons why lives change over time. Mm-hmm. People have, you have no choice but to, to rebuild your life every day. I mean, that, that happens whether you want it to or not. So you might as well take charge of it. Exactly. You, you might as well channel it into a direction that you want it to go. Well, you have to take charge of it. Because if indeed all this research that you've been citing for this time we've been talking about money doesn't make you happy, um, acquisition doesn't make you happy, what makes you happy is meaning, what makes you happy is uh, pleasure and involvement, then to create more of that in the way you want it created, you have to be in charge. If you just let that happen, it's the roll of the dice. Worse, if you if you let it happen, you are building it on the wrong um, assumption. So you might as well let the science work for you. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one thing I could say, the one lesson for our culture, I, I think, is that this this new biology and these new findings that we're making that are, are a result of science, uh, it means that we as a country ought to be much busier building a, a vision of connection 
or a vision of community rather than a vision of um, accumulation. Nicely said. Nicely said. That's right. And that's where when we talk about simplifying and we talk about going back to what's important uh, in life, I mean, that's really the the bottom line, that happiness is uh, something we create in the moments of what we pay attention to and what we affirm and that we need to uh, make sure that it, it has something to do with commu- community and involvement with other people and, and ourselves. That's right. Well, this has made me very happy to talk to you today, Mr. Logan. Well, I'm always happy to talk to you. <laughs> thank you so much, Jim, and, and thanks for helping me in a very deep way. And that is that, well, on many levels, because we're dear friends, but but in this level, you know, I have for so many years been talking psychology, been talking, taking charge of your thoughts and your feelings. And, you know, it does lend itself many times to people's interpretations of, oh, well, that's just that positive, you know, woo-woo psychology. But to have someone on with your credentials and your experience saying, now, wait a minute, folks, this is not woo-woo, this is science. And this is what it's based on. And here's the data. And though people who are listening to this may not be scientists, they at least get the expert opinion that what they're doing to help themselves by pivoting, by focusing on what they want rather than what they don't want, by feeling better about themselves, is going to create the life that you want to have. And that there is science to back that up and not just, you know, hubba, hubba, hubba psychology. Well, and, you know, you, you don't have to understand the science to put it to work. In, in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I go over and flip on the light switch, I have no idea what really happens <laughs> from a physics standpoint. Right. I mean, I don't understand it, yeah. but that doesn't keep me from using it. Exactly. So it's the same way with these scientific findings. All you have to know is the science now backs this up. Hallelujah. That's about, what I have to say. It's about time. It's about time. <laughs> All right, Jim Logan. Always a pleasure, Dr. Jim. Thank and you, uh, thank you for being on. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.